Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Renee Fleming has a powerful effect on people. Conductor Sir George Schulte described the opera singer's voice as double cream. Garrison Keillor said she made his nostrils twitch. New York chef Daniel Ballou created a signature dessert to honor her. But Renee Fleming is down to earth. When the people's diva, as she's been called, went to Paris... To rehearse Handel's Alcina, one of her favorite roles, she spent most of the first week looking for playgrounds for her two young daughters. Renee grew up in Rochester, New York, where both her parents were high school music teachers. During the first two years of her life, while in her playpen, Renee would listen while her mother gave singing lessons. A few years later, Renee organized a barbershop trio with her younger sister and brother. One might say Renee Fleming was born into music. I often refer to myself as an indentured servant because we grew up with it. My parents were both. We all sang all the time. You'd take a family cross-country trip and be singing the road signs and in harmony. And I thought everybody did that. You know? <laughs> I just thought, oh, well, this is what families do. When your friends would get in the car with your family and it was like, well, I'm with these crazy Flemings. Exactly. Those Flemings, they're, yeah, they exactly. sing to the trees yeah. and they sing to the exit signs. And, and we talked about singing. Did you feel like this is, was your way to communicate with your own parents? Well, interestingly, my dad was a big jazz fan. Uh, my mother didn't bring music home much. 
at all. She wanted a break from it when she came home. Uh, other than when we performed, she prepared us. You know, I think her idea was that we would be the next one traps. <laughs> you know, my father, thank God, put the kibosh on that and said, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, let me guess, your mother was the competitive one. She she was very type A. You know, she's Czech, and my, my grandmother and my aunts were all like this. I mean, you, they would come over, and they just—the work ethic was unbelievable. I think—I I work hard. No, 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 no. They used to look at me and say, you know, Renee, you're, you, you really need to step it up. Yeah. You know? And I see myself doing the same thing with my two daughters, so I can't—I sort of can't help it. But the music thing, you know, it was just so natural for us. And my way of rebelling against it was to find my own music. So I became a composer. In middle school, I started writing songs, and then— You played uh, piano? I played piano. I played guitar. And what kind of music did you write? Were you like— uh Johnny Mitchell music, or were you yeah, it was that? sort of singer, what we call now singer songwriter. But I also wrote art songs that I actually notated and wrote out that other people sang. In that time, women weren't particularly encouraged to be composers. In a different setting, that might have been the direction I would have gone in because I I loved it and it suited my temperament much better than performing. I was so shy. Performing was so far away from who I really was. Um. A specific opera, the first opera, if you can recall, because I, I, I remember the first movie I went to see in a movie theater. Ah. What was the first opera that you became aware of? You know, I would say, gosh, Schwarangelica is what I remember because my mother performed it and we were in the f- first row. And this is the Eastman Theater. So first of all, I was incredibly impressed by the theater. This massive chandelier, you know, all the velvet. I mean, I took a violin because of the velvet in the case. So <laughs> we were nothing if not superficial, I guess. You know, I didn't really know anything about the story, uh, but she was crying. And she was crying because she was singing about, you know, her, her dead baby and wanting to be joined with her baby again. And just looking at her three children in front of her. Somehow, I think that really impressed me. Did you ever imagine at that time, I mean, in middle school and you're seeing this piece, that that would be a path for you, that you'd end up where you are now? Gosh, no. Nobody really asked kids in those days, what do you want? Exactly. What would you like to do? You just went along. It's true. I know so many people in my generation who applied to three colleges and never gave it much thought and really— you know, the way we raise children now is worlds apart from oh. how we were raised. How do you feel, we say? How do you feel? Oh. My parents couldn't give a damn how I felt. No. Really. The only thing I thought that I wanted to be was the president. So yeah. there was, a, I, sure. I'd say, a kernel of ambition there. <laughs> in, the, in the world I was in, it was, you know, doctor, lawyer, or if you were of a more working class background, a job that just gave you security and a pension. Mm-hmm. The Long yeah. Island Railroad, the police department, the fire department. You know, you learn very quickly to choose from a menu. Actor was not on the menu. On the menu, that right. I was there, that was submitted to me. Well, I went into music ed, like my parents. So that's another thing you did. You followed your parents because you couldn't think of anything else to do. Sure. And then when the singing became more interesting, and particularly jazz, um, when I really found myself in, through singing with it in a club every weekend for two and a half years. Then my parents got nervous. Oh, it's so hard. It's too competitive. What happens when you're you're writing songs, popular music or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, where you said singer-songwriter, whether it's Carole King or what have you, and you're singing jazz in nightclubs in Rochester? 
clubs there? No, in Potsdam, where I went to undergraduate school. Is Potsdam a hotbed of jazz? Uh, no, it's a college hotbed. And the drinking age was 21. So clubs. We, yes. So we all spent a lot of time in clubs. And this particular Alger's pub had very high quality jazz cool. all the time. And the guys that I worked with are are all working musicians. It was an extraordinary education for me in uh, many, many ways. I mean, that's how I learned. That's how I was able to embrace performing. Because Illinois Jacquette heard me sing in Potsdam and said, why don't you come on the road? We'll come to New York and, and really Illinois do. Jacquette. Yes, yes. It's a great tenor saxophone player. Was really going to put me on the map as a jazz singer, and I just knew I didn't have the courage. You could have been a popular singer. You could have been, what, what, where well, do you take the term you're going to say, I'm going to, opera is it now. What you know, had I grown up in New York City, the singer-songwriter thing might have opened, doors might have opened. I mean, I sang on television in high school, winning some talent show, literally playing a song that I wrote. The, making the decision to go on into graduate school, that sort of solidified my Graduate path. school was where? At Eastman. So, so you went, went from Boston, you went back home. Yeah, I You're went back home for two years. You're still coming out of your show. Yeah, then... I tried to pursue jazz then, and that didn't work, despite the fact that Eastman had a phenomenal jazz department. I just couldn't get in. I couldn't break in. So, you know, it was really circumstance that pushed me towards classical music, and eventually I really embraced it. And the other thing is I realized it was much more suited to my temperament. I liked being in the practice room. I liked studying. I enjoyed wrestling with this instrument a lot. It was harder. I don't know that it was harder, but it was more internal kind of cerebral work. You know, the interesting thing about uh, jazz or anything popular, you see, is it was very personality-driven. And I just didn't have that. I think I do now. Interestingly, I've come out of my shell. I mean, when I tell people I'm, I was extremely shy, nobody believes me now. That's a thing that people have to overcome. Yes, exactly. You know, I found a lot of comedians to be extraordinarily serious and... And, and almost withdrawn sometimes. So, yeah, I think sometimes we overcome things by going after the very thing that really eludes us. So certainly in my case, that was it. I would observe friends who were comfortable at performing, and I would just try to act like them. So that was— It's interesting you said that. That worked. It's an impersonation. Someone yeah. said to me, well, how do you perform in the theater? Like, why is the theater so soothing to you? And I say, because I know that for two and a half hours, I know exactly where I'm going to be— exactly what I'm going to say, exactly what you're going to say, and exactly how a room full of people is going to react to what I say. Huh. And you don't feel performance pressure? Because I uh, had terrible stage fright. I do feel the pressure in rehearsal. I feel the oh. pressure to unearth, to get down to it and get the work done. And if I feel that we got the work done— hmm then it's orgasmic. You know, like I go out there in front of the audience and I'm like, well, how's everybody doing? You know, I'm like, I'm really, I'm very happy. <laughs> Comfortable, think, yeah. Yeah, I think they're going to like it. Right, right, But if right. I go out there and I'm a little bit hesitant because I'm thinking, I don't think we got it. Hmm. But um, you do two years at Eastman and mm -hmm. you get a graduate degree there, then what happens? Then I went to Juilliard. Uh, I did postgrad. Listen, I could, I could be a doctor or a lawyer right. as long as I was right. in school. I was say, how does that so, work? Why Juilliard? Juilliard, it, at the time, the American Opera Center, so now the Juilliard Opera Center, I believe, it was a postgraduate program. I was cast as Musetta in La Boheme. 
So I came here to sing a role. You get free lessons, coachings, all of the support that we couldn't otherwise afford. You know, you're a beginner. And I worked in Rockefeller Plaza for a law firm, pay my rent and everything. And it was a great year. It was a phenomenal year. Did you say to yourself, why didn't I do this sooner? Yeah. <laughs> yes, because I was so happy. I, mean, I was running around the city like a maniac. Uh, New York is fun. So active. And then I took a Fulbright grant and studied in Germany. And that was hard. How long were you there? A year. Where in Germany? In Frankfurt. How was that? It was important. It was probably one of the most crucial pieces in my education because it was so challenging, number one. Challenging how? I didn't speak a word of German when I went there. I was in the Hochschule for Musik and was not accepted into the opera department, which was very disappointing to me at the time. I cried the whole way there, literally, sobbing. Yes. And my boyfriend at the time, who became my husband, said, well, you know, don't not go because of me. And I remember thinking... God, that would be the furthest thing from my mind. I was so kind of self-possessed, but also clueless about the choices I was making. That's why I wrote a book for young singers, because if young singers are any one of them like I was, you just don't know what you're getting into. But I was also very lucky because that year turned out to be a very formative experience. I mean, learning to speak fluent German... How many languages do you speak fluently? Well, I studied French in high school, like many of us did. That was, you know, the language. Paris is my second home, and I sang there every year for a long time. So my French is, when I'm there, it picks up again, and it's good. But German is even more fluent and consistent. During that year, you learned to speak it fluently in that one year? Well, you know, I love the study of learning and of memory because what I've discovered is that at the end of that year, my German was okay, was good, you know. But every year, every time I go back, it gets better. And I don't have to speak a word of German in between. So the brain, those neurons keep firing. Then you come back to Juilliard. Yes, and I come back to Juilliard. I tried to stay in Germany. I tried to stay there and get work. No one would have me. So I came back. And my career started here then. How? Well, I had a rough couple of years of sort of no man's land, which is very common with singers between education and the start of career. It's very common for all of us, really, all musicians. You know, and there's this catch-22 where you can't get management unless they can go hear you perform, but you can't get a job if you don't have management. in the acting world. Okay. Call me when you're in a show. Yes. And I'll come see you. That's the manager you're trying to get. So competitions were the thing that helped me. I won the med competition. Exactly. In the theater, yeah. For me, it was the Met competition. I mean, it took me three times, but I finally won. All of a sudden, the doors opened, but it took about a year and a half, I'd say. Things went slowly, and but the first, and steadily. The first, and the first paid, legit, professional job you had was doing what? The first real engagement was in 1988 in the Houston Grand Opera, and it was Marriage of Figaro. And that really put me on the map. Right. And that was so important. I had never sung the opera in Italian. I'd sung it in English. So I went to rehearse with really seasoned professionals. I mean, people who were big opera stars already. And I was a beginner. You know, the first day of rehearsal, Thomas Allen in particular, Sir Thomas Allen, who's got such a an intelligence and a, a sophistication about his portrayal of all of these Mozart heroes. He's still performing, I think, at the Royal Opera. I was just jelly at the end of the first rehearsal because I thought, I can't even keep up with him. Mozart recitative is really hard. Imagine doing very quick dialogue in a foreign language that you don't speak, really. 
And I learned, you know, when you're young, you just, you just learn. You're doing you you're do what thinking. you have to do, yeah, <laughs> to keep up. I lifted the car off my baby because I had to lift the car exactly. off my baby to save my baby. Exactly. Yeah. And when you get these opportunities, you have to rise to the occasion and take a risk and get out there and really make it work or you don't get the opportunity again. You know, it's so competitive, the field. I think all my horseback riding and doing horse shows as a kid really prepared me for that. And when when the curtain, I I don't mean to be so melodramatic, but the world you live in kind of lends itself to this. When the curtain comes down and the show is the first show is over, how did you feel? Well, you know, it's unfortunately too long ago for me to remotely remember that. But, you know, I can tell you there was a euphoria in those early experiences, a sense of happiness and relief when I would go from one engagement to the other. You know, our world, we never stop. So there's no sort of you do a project and then you take a break. It's all a big blur. It's just after that, it's a blur. I say that to people. I say it's it's like it's all one big episode of a TV show to me now. You know, yeah. Say, what was it like doing? I'll go, God, I don't, you know. And when I watch a film, I remember events in my life at that time. And a scene will come on, and I'll go, I remember that day. That was the day my contractor called me and told me a pipe burst at my house in East Hampton. <laughs> you Did know, I don't really dwell on the work. Your roles and experiences somehow, if they didn't parallel your life, they were helpful in some way? Two things. One is more tangible than the other. Someone, Melanie Griffith years ago, said to me that every role you play is the chance to bury that part of yourself that you don't like. And the other thing I find is that when God wants to make fun of me and to mock me, mm-hmm. I'll get a script, and what's going on with that character is exactly what's going on in my right, life. Right, right, yes. And I'll read the script, and it's almost God is saying to me, see? Right. See? see? See how stupid it looks when it's on paper? I have felt that a lot of times when I've been in any kind of conflict or struggle. Somehow the repertoire that I'm performing has just coincidentally mirrored it in a way that's been healing. Let's say healing. This is Alec Baldwin, and I'm talking with singer Renee Fleming. More in a minute. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing today with Renee Fleming. In your work, because in my work, it's not this way. You can't do what you do unless you summon up some reservoir of the deepest, deepest passion to sing these roles effectively. But think of a role you've, you've performed where even you sat there and go, God, this is killing me. Well, it came out of you like you couldn't believe it came out of you. You know, there, well, there are two sides of it. One is the vocal. One, one is the feeling that, you know, I'm in the right place at the right time to be singing this. And, and you What's know, the voice. Well, the voice is such a, an evolving instrument. So when I sang Thais, for instance, at the Met some years ago and had these spectacular costumes from Christian Lacroix, you just thought the stars have aligned to make this role suit me perfectly right now. I love singing in French. I love Massenet, the way it lies, the character, the fact that, you know, the psychological drama in this opera where these two people completely change places with each other. That was a case certainly where I just thought, you know, and I was going to do it again. And somebody stopped and said, do you want to sing it again in five years if it's not as good as it was this time? And I said, you're right. I'm, I'm not going to. You felt it was I'm good. not going to risk that. You enjoyed it. Oh, it was, it was perfect. I mean, it was, I couldn't do it better. So th- it's not very often I can say that. I couldn't do it better. Someone else maybe could do sure. it better. Different. It was the best I'm that better, I could different. do. But you said there was two things, the voice and what else? The voice and then also what you bring artistically to anything, you know. For instance, the Marshallin right now in Rosenkavalier evolves all the time for me. It's not a vocal issue. It's, a, it's an artistic issue. It's who she is, what she's grappling with. Is she manic depressive? Is she simply lonely? She's one of the most interesting characters in all of opera for women. I mean, how she was created by two men, I don't know, but I'm grateful to have her. You know, the other thing, I don't know if you f- feel this squeeze, but you may. We're squeezed between what's kind of commercial and popular 
opera hits. Well, how has that changed? I was going to ask What's artistic? You, how has that changed in the opera world in your, during your career? Well, there are two parts to it, because there's one, there's, there's the titles. And I wasn't born to sing, unfortunately, Madame Butterfly, Tosca, Why? you know, Boheme. My voice isn't, I'm not a lyrical spinto. I'm a lyric soprano. So my voice is too light for those parts, unfortunately. If I could sing those roles, then the success I've had uh, with the public would have transferred over to the repertoire. Did you, did you try to do them? No. That kind of assignation happens in your world. People that are experts who are technical experts tell you that's not your repertoire. Right. They do. Well, and in trying to sing that repertoire, I would have harmed my voice. I understand. Or at the, at the very least, just not been heard. We're not amplified. And, you know, that's an, a very important distinction between what we do and what everyone else does. So to try and build a career on titles that aren't sort of at the heart of the operas that people love is more challenging. On the other hand, the trend that I've seen since I started singing 20 years ago, you know, plus, is that people have been more interested in learning about pieces they didn't know and experiencing pieces they didn't know as opposed to going to the umpteenth Aida for instance. Mm -hmm. The other squeeze that I feel is virtuosity versus artistry because people go to opera, I mean, the three tenors, case in point, for thrills, for vocal, for the thrill of what the human voice is capable of producing. And for tenors and sopranos, and it's really, for us, it's a high note. It's all about the high note. You know, are you going to break glass? Are you going to, is it going to give us um, shivers? Are we going to cry because you've just throbbed on that high sea? figure out how to program so that one gets some of that without you kind of really using up your principle and using up what it is that you have and or interesting them in in music that doesn't have that music that's more about poetry and prose and and turning a phrase that's more subtle i've gone back and forth between those two things my whole career what's one of the more popular in your mind in your range Oh, Traviata. So Traviata is what? By far, yeah. That's in the the greatest hits category. Exactly. And what is one that you might have been doubtful about or at the very least indifferent about that was you were approaching and it turned out to be a wonderful experience because it was more esoteric? I think Rodalinda handles Rodalinda. I, I, you know, I was drawn to her because of the character, the story. She's a mother. She's courageous. She's strong. It's a masterpiece, this opera. It wasn't known. It had never been done at the Met. So some of these titles, in a way, you know, being given this place that I've had at the Met for some time also gave me the opportunity to say, what about this? Having done a lot of the standard repertoire that I could sing, and I've sung 54 roles. You know, I've been saying 51. I was wrong. I recounted. Was a miscount. Come out of your show. 
Yeah, I know. The, the Alger Pub. <laughs> exactly. Get out of that Alger it's Pub enough. and start it's opening up. Yeah, you're so you're so uh, unproductive. Yeah. You're so lazy. I know. I know. <laughs> exactly. You speak German. You speak oh. French. How have opera audiences changed during your career, uh, if at all? I think the challenge we face in opera in general, and I would say forget opera in classical music, is really exposure. It used to be that we had exposure, obviously, in schools. We had exposure through churches and uh, through our families. Every socially climbing family got a piano uh, and, and felt that a musical education was part, an arts education was part of their children's, you know, the betterment of their lives. And that, you know, it is what it is. It is, it is gone. It is just simply people don't feel it's relevant anymore. Uh, that breaks my heart when you say that, but it's true. But in the 30-plus years, 33 years now I've lived in Manhattan, I've never seen anything like the world of opera in terms of the devotion. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the money for these tickets. Right. They don't have 200 bucks, 250 375 you know, some, I mean, because opera costs money. Right. The sets, the synth, the orchestra, the it's music. It's the most expensive. It's the most expensive Art arts form, yeah. ticket that there is. Mm. And yet you see these people that are teachers – Right. They put all their chips on this. They're like, oh, I have to come see Renee. Right. How do you feel about that? Do you know, I, I, you feel, I know you're right. Do you feel a right. palpable thing from, oh. from the opera audience that's unique to you? Listen, the bloggers, the amount of investment, <laughs> the emotional investment that people make in this art form is just, it's it's way beyond anything else. And the criticism, else. no doubt, I'm sure. Yeah, but that, that's what I mean. It's off the charts, the passion, <laughs> for better or for worse. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think it's phenomenal. It's funny because I can't understand it. I'm too close and I'm too critical, obviously, because it's my work. I mean, so when I go to the opera, I want to be swept away. And sometimes I am. I I mean, I've gone to to the opera a couple of times where I have literally been sobbing at the end and just have to pull myself together. Can you say one? Oh, yeah. Peak Dom. Peak Dom kills me. Queen of Spades. I am always shocked by that a cappella men's chorus at the end. The way that opera is composed, the music, and Tchaikovsky's final phrases, it, it just does something amazing to me. like living in New York? Yeah, Or has your relationship to that changed over time? Do you know, I'm, it's funny. I have never felt like New York is my home. But it's because we're nomads. We, right. you know, we're, I'm very adaptable that way. I mean, I'm home wherever I am. You guys travel. And then in the classical music world, of the, the symphonic as well as opera, yeah. you guys travel more all than All the time. Yeah, all the time. And so when I am home, I'm also inundated. You know, when I because I'm gone so much. Yeah, so it's not so much fun to be here. Um, <laughs> it will be when I get some rest. When you do a show, when you're performing a piece, what's the day like for you? Do you have a ritual? I have a ritual. I do. But how, yeah. how do you have a ritual when you have little children? That's what I was really interested well, in. Well, my ritual. What, what's mommy's uh, ritual? My yes, I am really consistent about getting up with my kids no matter how late I've been up. So sure. at 7 a.m. I'm up. and um, Your kids are how old? No, 7, 7, 15. I only have one at home now. The other's in college. So the one at home is 16. 
And good times, um, right? Good times. <laughs> I have a sixteen-year-old. It's good times. Yeah, it's. It's, we could uh, write an opera about yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. It's, you know, okay. That's <laughs> another whole story. Another whole story. Mostly good. Mostly great. What does she want to do? She want to be in the biz? She wants to sing pop music. That's her real dream. And this kid sings all the time. So. Um, What's your older one doing? She is in college and gender studies. And she's not exactly sure what she wants to do with that yet. Where is she she's going? a very serious girl. She's in Boston, you know, very gifted, and we'll see. So what's the routine then? My routine is, is not to leave the apartment. That Really, that's it. I stay home. I stay off the phone. I mean, I, I'm phone-phobic anyway. I almost never talk on the telephone. And And uh, my speaking voice is terrible for what I do. When you're on a phone, you automatically, you don't hear your voice very often, and you automatically press just a little bit. It tires me. It's fatiguing. Um, and I get tense, and I don't know. It's it's all in my head, really. It's totally, I, you know, it's 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 a made up uh, one less pressure to have. And the other thing I do, I get a lot of work done. I'm actually very productive on performance days because that's when I, you know, I sit there and I, I work. Email, whatever. Email, you know, studying music, whatever. And then you go to the theater. Mm-hmm. And do you have a do do people in your field? Do you have like a warm up you do? Is there a? Well, I, I know I, nothing about that. I vocal. I try to vocalize earlier in the day because I find that it, it it's better for me, a little bit just to kind of see where it's at. You, avoid you know, eating some days, certain things, drinking certain things. I mean, I have to be careful about. I love caffeine. You know, I would drink coffee all day, and I have to be careful about that because it's dehydrating. So I'll have uh, my typical. So and I, you have to force fluids a little bit, which I hate too. So these are the boring things. Well, but not really, because people I think are just interested in what kind of the, the, the discipline. It's complex. I yeah. Mean, most people can't control what they eat and drink. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, um, having the humidifier on, making sure it's a lot about, you know, moisture. These are all mucous membranes. The vocal folds are very sensitive, and you want to go into that performance with them being super healthy and, and not dried out. We're the Olympians of singers, really. You'll have a three- to five-hour-long performance, and yeah. that takes a lot of physical you know, stamina. for an hour. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a lot of physical stamina. <laughs> Plus, you're emotionally all over the place, sure. you know. Uh, as you said, I it's a very—but it's mainly the amount of sound we have to produce to be heard over the orchestra and the chorus in a huge hall. That's the, the thing that, that is different. And if we sing well, if we sing technically well, we should be able to get up the next day and sound normal. You know, people go to sports events and scream at, you know, the other team or even their, the people they like, and they're hoarse the next day. We can't do that. We're doing the same thing, but we're doing it in a trained way. And, you know, it is a hard art form to get right. There are all these elements, and it's live. But when it's right, it's, it's amazing.
Renee Fleming says she's looking forward to getting some rest, although it's not clear when that will come. In addition to her busy performance schedule, she recently became the creative consultant for the Lyric Opera in Chicago. They just announced an upcoming world premiere opera based on the bestseller Bel Canto, and she's been advocating for more arts education in schools. It's not just for people to be consumers of the arts, it's for them to also participate, find their creative voices, and build confidence through participation. Special thanks to the Metropolitan Opera and the Houston Grand Opera for providing archival excerpts of Renee Fleming in performance. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.